What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Reclaim Your Voice podcast. This podcast is dedicated to the unseen, unheard, and underrepresented. I'm your host, Leslie Liu, trauma-informed self-defense coach, international best-selling author and speaker, and founder of Reclaiming Your Courage. Each episode is an unfiltered celebration of speaking from the heart, having fun, and celebrating the diversity of thought and stories from traditionally marginalized folks. What's up? Okay, so I am super fired up about this episode, and I want to say that it was love at first voice. Because when I met Annie, I just, it was a couple of days before my birthday on Messenger, and I get this lovely voice memo from someone I don't know, opera singing um, a happy Happy birthday birthday to to Leslie. Yes. And so we're going to have a lot of fun today, but we're going to get into the heart of things. But I wanted my guest to introduce herself. Um, Who are you and how do you identify? Yeah, my name is Annie Tan. I'm from Chinatown in Manhattan. I live in Queens, New York now. I use she, her pronouns. Uh, and I am an Asian American activist, educator, and writing my first book. Uh, so I'm super excited to be talking to you today, Leslie. Yeah, awesome. So we were connected because I was on the Bangmi um, Chronicles uh, podcast, and so is Annie. But I mean, what... What what brought us together, Annie? What do you what do you think it was? Well, being badass, Asian American femmes and feminists, um, you know, I pretty much anyone I hear on podcasts, I'm like, oh, uh, when I heard you talk with Randy about just what it means to have culturally relevant self-defense trainings and being in community with folk uh, on that podcast. And was like, I have to talk to Leslie. I got to talk about what it means to have culturally re- relevant care just across like different spectrums that you wouldn't even think about, like self-defense, uh, like keeping our community safe, and then kind of reimagining what this world could look like for us if we were actually safe and like what actual safety looks like. Um, and I just also heard your spirit in that podcast episode, which everyone should listen to if you haven't already. Um, of just how unapologetic you were about things, about the losses you've had to take because you are unapologetic and the necessity for us to take up space so that we can make this a better world. So I really admired that when I was listening to you and I imagined myself wanting to do similar things uh, with my writing, with my educating, with the activism work I've done myself. Um, and I just was like, oh, I need to be in collaboration with Leslie. That's really what I thought. And then I texted Randy. I was like, oh, please introduce me to this person. And now we're here. And that's where that messenger, uh, song came from, by the way. Yeah. I think that I want to address the white elephant in the room and the white elephant in the room is that so deeply have I been craving really speaking to Asian women. And this podcast is all about underrepresented voices, but I think there's something to be said about being an Asian woman unfiltered. And so when I met with Annie, right off the bat, we gave zero fucks. And I think that it's important to acknowledge 
where we come from, but also to acknowledge within white supremacy and systems of oppression, there are also minimization and gaslighting that happens within our own communities. And I am, I am very forthright in saying that is that when you are Asian female and you have a strong voice, um, that is not received so well within Asian culture. So Annie, how does that land for you? Yeah, I grew up in a Chinatown household where I wasn't supposed to speak. And that's partly because in Chinatown, you're not supposed to speak up. You're supposed to be this uh, kid of immigrants or immigrant who shouldn't rock the boat, who should do hard work. Right. And, um, you know, the mix of being a woman in that means that you're also supposed to do house chores. You're supposed to be obedient to the man in Chinese culture. Right. Um, The Confucian ideal is, you know, uh, Woman, a woman is not uh, their own unit till they're married off um, to a person. Whereas, you know, Alan Chin, the photographer, uh, told me this one day. He was just like, "Yeah, a man can do his own thing. He, he's his own unit, but a woman is not seen as a full adult person unless they're paired off with a man." Uh, and it always, I always felt resentful of that. Um, that I. I couldn't speak up. I couldn't do my own thing. I uh, had to get home earlier. I couldn't, I I had to be respectable. I mean, everyone has to be respectable, but I had to be even more respectable. And so when I talk to you like this, uh, when I would do speaking engagements, when I'd be out at protests, when I was doing union work, um, there was always like, why are you here? Why why you? Um, And there was always also like, you know, in like the later 2010s or so, uh, this idea of, oh, like, wait, we actually need more representation because we look bad uh, if this is an all white space. Um, But the tokenization was also not uh, very healthy because you're just a face in the room without any real power to change much. It's like DEI training. Uh, they, They don't really do much to change the status quo of an org or a culture, right? Um, and so I think as I started speaking as an educator and just in general, telling my family story out loud, um, there was a huge stigma against that. Um, and especially from men, specifically from men, uh, gaslighting me, telling me my own experience wasn't valid. Um, people telling me that, uh, I should smile more, uh, men telling me that I shouldn't curse. Well, fuck that. Um, Men telling me that uh, I should be more presentable. I should be putting on makeup. I'm not wearing makeup right now. Um, And it's, you know, it's not happening the way you want it to happen for me. Yeah, like we're not fucking porcelain dolls, okay? (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about from your social activism lens and what you were just speaking about of like not fitting into that box and not being prim and pop proper and speaking out and being kind of put in your place. What was going on for you during the time of like Christina, you know, Lee's passing. And what I saw in the community specifically around Asian women activists was an anguish that 
and a fatigue that happened because they have been putting in this work and it was advocacy around trying to express to people the added level of erasure. It's one thing to have like Asian hate crimes, but when these crimes started happening to Asian women that look like you and I, and really trying to advocate for kind of the double-edged sword of being an Asian woman, right? Like if you're too aggressive, you're a dragon lady. But if you are not speaking up enough, right, you're always a forever forever foreigner and you're always this hypersexualized being and this submissive being. Like there is no middle ground. And so I think the feeling of not speaking up is felt even more. But how did you experience that with trying to express to people that pain of that level of erasure? Because we were seeing women being pushed into into like trains and everything. So there's going to be two parts to that answer. And this is going to be a long answer. I'm warning you now. Um, first, uh, with Michelle Goh and Christina Yuna Lee and all the attacks um, here in New York City, um, but also just everywhere, you know, um, the Filipina woman who got stomped on in that hor- horrific, uh, you know, somewhere in Midtown. Um, and there was a horrible video of it. That was one of my friend's aunties. Um, and she said that and I was like, oh, I, I knew I knew someone I knew uh, would know her. Um, when Atlanta happened, uh, there were a lot of people who were not Asian saying like, this is a gendered crime. Like this is a crime against women specifically. Why are you making this about race? And my answer was these women would not have been attacked had it not been a racialized and gendered crime. Right. These women were seen as disposable foreigners, um, sex workers, even though there was no proof they were sex workers. And there's also nothing wrong with being a sex worker. Right. Um, And um, there is also a stigma of just talking about the massage worker industry. Right. And the low pay, the uh, amount of labor um, and because of all that invisibility, undocumentation. Right. that allows for a lot of things to just go unsaid in those communities and then for people to make assumptions about that. Um, And that's been perpetuated through, as you said, the dragon myth and flower blossom stereotypes that Anna Mae Wong, unfortunately, was relegated to and which is why she had to move away from America to uh, be a movie star because she couldn't do it here in America, which was racist AF. Christina Yuna Lee lived uh, three blocks from my childhood home in Chinatown. Uh, I I actually walked by there this day last year. Um, We're talking on Valentine's Day right now. Um, Happy uh, Palentine's Day to everyone. Um, And it was really, so many people had um, put flowers and things in memoriam because it just was so horrific how she was killed. and some people were like, go lock your door because she left the door open, which allowed the guy to come in. Um, that's it's not as simple as that. She was targeted. She was followed. Um, and then the second part of the answer um, is about my own history of just API hate um, as a relative of Vincent Chin. Uh, Vincent Chin was murdered 40 years ago um, as of 
what when I'm speaking, he was killed in June 1982 um, during a wave of anti-Japanese sentiment in the Detroit area because there was a huge loss of American auto jobs and Japanese auto companies are being blamed for the loss of those jobs. And these two white workers saw my cousin Vincent Chin's face and thought he was Japanese when he was Chinese. And they got into a fight. Um, the two guys uh, paid another man uh, to tell him, them where he was. And they stalked and they followed him and they beat my cousin to death. Um, and this was a week before his wedding. So all of my family members were going to go to his wedding, but instead went to his funeral. And the two, even though there were like 70 witnesses because it was in front of a McDonald's, the guys were not ever uh, sentenced to jail. They only paid $3,000. And a white judge said, this is, these are not the kind of men you sent to jail, even though they, one of them held my cousin Vincent as the other one beat, bashed his brains in. Um, and a police officer who was there said uh, he was swinging like uh, he was going for a home run. And so during all, just any time Asian American violence happens, any time there's been a controversy about any kind of violence um, surrounding Asian Americans, I, since I've been, since I've gone publicly about being a cousin of Vincent Chin, I've, I've had to speak up and say something. So Atlanta, I had to say a lot of things. And this was also why I was full-time teaching during the pandemic and also fighting for COVID safety measures during the pandemic, which also other people didn't like because people were like, school should be open. And I was like, our kids are not vaccinated um, and um, give them options. And uh, when 2021 rang around and it was June, 2021, uh, most like most of the kids in New York City public schools were still deciding to be remote. And that was majority black, Latinx and Asian people who all knew that they would be the ones who could die from this virus, especially without vaccination at that point, um, especially for our 12 and younger kids. As an elementary special ed teacher um, during that time, that was just a lot to take in. So confluences of trying to fight for school safety while also trying to fight for our Asian American community safety was quite a lot um, and uh, has been a lot. And so I, uh, I'm currently not teaching. Uh, I, after doing pandemic teaching, I just really burnt out alongside doing all this Asian American advocacy work. Um, and I am now taking a break to, which is not really a break because I'm writing a book. Writing a book is not a break, but I am almost done with the first draft of my book, um, which I'm very excited about, um, which is about, it's literally titled right now, Learning to Speak, uh, which is learning to speak up with my languages uh, as a Chinese American person who's not fluent in any Chinese language while my parents don't speak English, but also learning to speak up as an activist and really rocking the boat when things need to be rocked, um, but also trying to make sure my community is engaged. Um, and I, I'm speaking up to power and not just calling out uh, and making people feel shame over, I guess, like, you know, we have so much cancel culture and all this other stuff, but people actually need to be called in. 
and feel like they can be a part of this movement space and movement work and trying to figure out with this book, with educating young students, how to call people in so that they feel part of community. They don't feel isolated. And one last thing, because this has been a long answer. Um, whenever I feel like, you know, that imposter syndrome we talked about earlier, right? That um, we are minimized, gaslit, silence. I always think back to Vincent Chin's mother, Lily Chin, who is my great auntie, and who, without um, her advocacy, no one would know Vincent Chin's name today because she was the mother, she was the face of that uh, civil rights movement. Um, the reason why so many people know Vincent Chin's name now is because it broadens this term Asian American in the first place because uh, everyone who looked East Asian. Uh, could be like, wow, we look Japanese, we could get killed next. And so it was a call to arms, like we are not letting this happen again in our community. And so all these groups that had previously just identified by ethnicity um, said, we're going to fight together under this term Asian American. And that term really grew out of that Vincent Chin movement, right? All these orgs that I work with, like CAV here in New York City, CAV was founded um, after Vincent Chin was killed and was previously the Coalition Against Anti-Asian Violence. There's a direct link to these orgs I've worked with um, in my cousin's case. And all of that exists because Lily Chin said hundreds and hundreds of times, I want justice for my son and I don't want this to happen to anyone else's mothers. And that doesn't include just the Asian American community, that includes our Black and Latinx and Native and Indigenous communities that are all being attacked under white supremacy and white supremacist culture that makes it so that we are othered, we are silenced, we are foreigners, we don't belong here, um, and we should be killed for it. And so every day, sometimes I'm like, I want a tattoo here saying WWLD, what would Lily do? Um, which my family would hate. Um, but just as a reminder that I have this in my blood, that there is a fighting legacy that led to all of us being able to be here today. Um, and that my little fear right now, um, as Audrey Lord would say, your silence, your silence will not protect you, right? You, you, we have to speak. We have to speak. And I really want to take a beat and honor everything, all that knowledge you just dropped on us. And when I connected with you, I didn't know that you were related to Vincent Chin. And anyone that's listening to this, whether you're Asian American or not, before I talk to Annie, I Vincent Chin is such a part of me, right? Like Vincent Chin, I remember watching Who Killed Vincent Chin. Vincent Chin was killed the year that I was born in 1982. And I think that that story is something that should not be forgotten. So if you don't know the story of Vincent Chin, I feel like it's so important to know that, right? And it's an example that I like to lay out for people as we talk about Asian hate crimes or whatever, and people try to push this narrative of Black and Asian crime. And it is not a narrative that I have subscribed to and I have told people that that's not my experience. And historically, 
the Black community has always shown up for the Asian community. And so when you and I were talking specifically around movement around Vincent's, you know, in support of Lily and everything that was going on, you talked about the Black and Jewish community really, really pulling up. Can you talk more about that? Right. So there are a lot of Asian, you know, ethnic based organizations that were Asian that did not want to support my cousin because he was at a strip club. It was not respectable. He got into a fight, right? That doesn't mean he should have been murdered, but the black community, the Jewish community, racial justice org in um, the Michigan area came up and showed up. Um, You know, when I saw who killed Vincent Chin for the first time, uh, of course, the very first thing I, you know, I, I actually didn't know how Lily was related to me when I watched that movie, um, which um, you should watch if you haven't seen Who Killed Vincent Chin. Um, It's just a wonderful case study of just the historical context of a place um, in which something so horrific could happen. Um, And just watching Lily Chin speak her language, Toysan, so unapologetically as well. you know, and seeing the translations, it just made me feel like, oh, like we belong here, right? That this this movie like documents like this language being okay on film. Like it, that's just such a simple thing. But when you get to the part where there are these rallies and Jesse Jackson of all people, who's running for president around that time, right? Um, he's saying out loud, we we must uh, we must fight this case. These are our comrades, right? Uh, there's you can just Google Jesse Jackson and Lily Chin and they're just hugging and talking to each other. And I, I will never forget that, um, that um, there were just so many communities of people that didn't have to, but knew it was the right thing to do. Um, and I met some of those allies at the 40th anniversary uh, memorial and remembrance of Vincent Chin in June, 2022. And I just, I'm just so grateful for all that solidarity work. You know, we are pitted against other communities of color for a reason, because if we all came together um, and showed our political power, like we will in 2042, when we uh, white people will no longer be the majority uh, in America, which is why this is kind of like a last stand of white supremacy, I feel like, to try to put all these things in. Um, Just awful things like uh, repealing Roe v. Wade and all of that, right? Those are all because people know that they will no longer be the majority and they're trying to desperately cling on to white supremacist values for as long as they can. Um, and it's very dangerous, but we, we also have to know we are the global majority, um, that things don't have to be like this. Um, I also got to speak with like Michael Moore, you know, the documentarian uh, of you know, Fahrenheit 9-11 and Bowling for Columbine. Uh, say what you will about him. Uh, I think he's fantastic. He had this great documentary called um, Which Empire to like Take Over Next or something like that, um, where he talked about universal childcare and universal healthcare in countries that are doing better than us because they actually care about people. Um, and so there are so many people trying to do the right thing and trying to fight for a livable society. Um, And we can't let these 
white supremacist bastards try to stop that hope from uh, being extinguished within us. I think that um, it's such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful sentiment of what you're talking about. And I want to go back to, you know, what would Lily do? And also talk about what you and I connected on in terms of how you found out about your cousin's passing is one aspect. And then secondly, what's it like being in your family now outwardly talking about his legacy, the brutality, the violence, like, is that well received or not? Can you touch on that? Yeah, no, my family has been mad at me at multiple points for talking about Vincent Chen. But I also think they know I'm not going to stop at this point. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing. But like, I think a ghost that's not talked about is scarier than a ghost that we face. It's like every Stephen King uh, novel, right? There is a monster that's mysterious and unknown. And that unknown monster is scarier, just like in Stranger Things. Once you see the demigorgons in Stranger Things, they're actually not as scary as like when they're just like a, a looming threat all around and you don't know who they are. You don't know how smart they are. You don't know how strong they are. Um, and you have to kind of know like the, the beast. But luckily, we don't live in a strictly good versus evil world. We live in a world with complex characters who are people and who are human and who have the reasons. And the big thing is, this was a traumatic thing in my family, you know, and this was something that, you know, my great auntie Lily lost the case after court battle after court battle. We lost the case. Um, and I wasn't alive when that happened. You know, I didn't see the anguish she went through to try to win those court cases only to lose. Um, so I get why my family doesn't want to talk about it, especially the ones that were alive and there when that happened. I fully understand why my family doesn't talk about it. And the other wrinkle is that I'm not fluent in Chinese. So how could I have heard a lot about this? I actually found out about Vincent Chin when I was 13. And I just happened to be watching PBS on a Sunday. And there was this documentary on called Becoming American, the Chinese experience, which I was like, wow, this is perfect for me. I don't know my history. Uh, I didn't learn it in school. In third grade, I had a teacher who taught about China like it was a tourist destination and not where 96% of us Chinatown kids were from, which was ridiculous. Um, and so I was watching it and uh, Bill Moyers starts talking about Vincent's story and the context of it and all the activism coming up about from that time. And uh, he talked about the term Asian American. And I was so excited to feel like this term was mine, right? That I wasn't just, well, like, first, I, I just always thought of myself as like Chinese, but like just the word American wasn't like, even though I'm a US citizen, I was born here, like, the term American just didn't fit. So, you know, the, the documentary itself was already revolutionary and just calling myself Chinese American, right? And then it goes to the term Asian American because of the Vincent Chin case uh, in this documentary. And I'm like, wow, this is really cool. And then my mom walked into the room and saw Vincent Chin's photo on the screen and was like, go, go, that's your cousin. And my mind was blown because 
I knew the term bukal like means a blood relative. It's not like just like some abak, some random uncle who's like not a blood relative. Um, but then, then I just looked at my mom and she was just so pained by it. And I knew she wasn't going to say anything more. And then she just walked away. And she's only mentioned it like a few times since. Uh, one time when my brother said he was going to meet some friends at a bar at 11 p.m. And my mom said, uh, don't get killed like your cousin did. Um, this was like in our 20s. Um, and then as I became more public about it, my mom would just be like, Mo gong lady Vincent Chin ye. Just stop talking about Vincent. Um, and I've, I've gotten similar, like I've gotten responses like from other relatives. Like I, I was just at a family wedding and uh, a cousin was like, yeah, like uh, she came over because of the Vincent Chin stuff, like because I'm trying to learn my family history. Um, a silver lining of all this is that because I don't speak Chinese um, and I'm realizing this as I'm writing this memoir that me finding out about Vincent was an, a way for me to have agency over my family history, which I thought I would never have access to. And so now there's a documentary that I just told you has subtitles to listen to whoever this person is talk about our family. Um, and, you know, I found out through her, like, so Lily Chin spoke to Helen Zia, who's amazing. Uh, and was a huge activist on the Vincent Chin case and just uh, author around the Wen Ho Lee case and who wrote Last Bowl Out of Shanghai, which everyone should read. Um, and she heard from an oral history uh, from her that uh, Lily's dad didn't want Lily to go to America because his grandfather somewhere helped build the Transcontinental Railroad and was pushed out of America. And so I found out through a book that I am likely related to someone who helped build this place, right? And was pushed out of America because of the Chinese Exclusion Act and anti-immigration laws. And so it's, it's been an opening for me to understand what happened in a way that I could never understand solely just through my Chinese language because I'm not fluent. Um, so I am really grateful for that. And I'm exploring that in my memoir of just how much I'm longing for family connection through that story and also looking for hope and a sense of purpose and action for my life when I learn my family story. And I'll say, you know, when you, when you, Leslie, talk to people about it, I'm sure they are moved by the story of Vincent. When I tell it, it reminds people this is a living history. This is not just something in a history book. This is something people are living through right now. And it humanizes it even more. And I always say like Michael Brown's case would not be as public without the relatives saying we want justice too, right? This is a long living legacy before Lily Chin, after Lily Chin of family members having to fight because they are the ones that, you know, will have the most impact in terms of getting justice. And they're also the ones who want justice the most. Um, and that's why we have to support in solidarity um, with Black Lives Matter, with other communities that are being attacked because one, like, it's not justice for some of us, it's justice for all of us. It's not just us. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, and I imagine that even though you had to learn secondhand about your cousin, 
that there's strength and love and connection that you can find in keeping his legacy alive? Like, do you feel connected to him the more you you talk about his story? Well, I, f- I feel connected to my family, like, first and foremost, because we all loved him, right? I never met him. A lot of my family members never met him, actually, because a lot of us immigrated uh, to America after he was killed, uh, including my parents, including my grandmother. Um, and so a lot of us just never met him, unfortunately. But there's this deep abiding love of family. That's one thing in Confucius, uh, Confucian values. That's a good thing, right? That you take care of your family. And we saw that during COVID, that there was so much mutual aid. There's so much community support. And that comes from a collectivist view of uh, community rather than an individualism that we have here in America. And as I learned more about Vincent, you know, um, Vincent, for instance, wanted to be a writer, right? And Lily's like, um, there's no money in writing. And I'm about to learn that. I'm about to learn that uh, as someone trying to finish this book. Um, there, I think another thing that I, I knew when I first learned the story at 13, I knew that if there was any violence for China, like with coronavirus, things being called the Kung flu and China virus and all of that, right? Um, or if we were ever to go to war with North, North Korea, if just anything happened with any Asian country that we were, we were fucked, that people here in America would flip on us like a diamond. We've seen it happen with API hate uh, during this pandemic. Um, we've known that with the emasculation of Asian men, right, in the society because they weren't allowed to be sex figures. They were anti uh, interracial marriage laws here in America. So the Asian men who are stuck here and couldn't bring over wives or couldn't meet women in America, um, they they were stuck in bachelor societies, right? And it was just all lonely men. Alvin Eng, in his uh, memoir, Our Laundry, Our Town, that came out last year, uh, documents just his dad uh, being in an increasing bachelor society where there's cultural and linguistic, uh, you know, separations from other people. And uh, this was all put on us because Asians were not allowed to immigrate to America in the first place. They were only up till 19, between like 18, 1882 and like 1943, only a hundred of us could even come to America and you had to be handpicked. You had to be a merchant or whatever. Um, and then the laws after that shifted just a bit in 20 years or so. And then in 65, it, they prioritized graduate students, educated classes, right? And uh, family members. And the reason I'm here in America is because we had another, uh, we had multiple family members, including Lily Chin, who married veterans. Um, and so they could marry someone abroad and bring them to America. And because we had people here in America, we were allowed to move. Uh, as family reunification efforts. Um, but there is a reason why there, the perpetual foreigner myth exists. And it's because we were literally not allowed to be here in America. And I'm, I'm really like, you know, we, we say that as a historical fact, the immigration, but I think we really need to talk about that more. 
about how that exclusion from America and that, not just Chinese or East Asian people too, right? Um, really created this society. It's like when people talk about the impacts of slavery, like those still exist. And we can't wrap our minds around what America is today till we've reckoned with all of that together. And all of that is white supremacist. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about the seeds of hate that are continuing to spread um, in the media around the perpetual foreigner because it's like, oh, the Chinese spy balloon. Right. And so we see we see these the narration, whether it's in the 1800s or currently today, that's and, and we have to recognize that that's a narrative that's being placed there. So thank you for touching upon that. And and our Latinx comrades also, they also couldn't come to America. So there's also this perpetual foreigner myth that's placed on them as well, right? Because of this idea that, oh, uh, we are from here. We're born here. We're the only ones that should be here. And that's not okay. Um, And um, we just really have to reckon with our history. And that's why Florida is doing what they're doing, banning books everywhere is banning books because they know that if this history were out there, that um, people would be outraged, you know, and people would actually try to change the status quo and people in power don't want that. Yeah, books are being banned. And I think it's beautiful that your memoir is called learning, you know, learn to learning to speak. And you made a statement earlier that I actually you're like, well, this is a small thing, but I'm like, it's a big thing because you talked about speaking Toisan. And, you know, because my husband's family speaks Toisan. And that's a very dis- like distinctive dialect. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I have another guest this season that's coming on. And we talked about the distinction between um, China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. And uh, people, she's from Hong Kong, and people assuming that she speaks Mandarin. And so, um, I think being able to not leg- let legacies die and Toisan, I will say, is a dying language just because of the mere fact of the pushing of Mandarin all across the United States. Like I have white people that come to me and speak Mandarin all the time because their kids go to school. And I'm like, okay, like, but do you really understand why you're speaking Mandarin and what's the historical context right. of that. Right. And, you know, uh, another uh, friend of mine calls Toisan an indigenous language of the region, which I, I think is correct. Um, I don't know the full history of Southern China, but, um, you know, people who speak Toisan uh, may or may not understand Cantonese. Definitely more people speak Cantonese than Toisan, but Cantonese speakers can't understand Toisan. Um, so like a whole, my whole first chapter is like about like not the whole first chapter, but a good chunk of the first chapter is having to explain Cantonese, Toisan and Mandarin, the differences between the three that I could hear the differences, but I couldn't quite understand the differences. And then also that they're tonal languages. So like part of why I can't speak it is because uh, Toisan and Cantonese have two different tonal systems. Uh, and if you say so, for example, uh, let me see if you can hear the difference between these two words. Say, say. Yeah, you can hear it. 
So say is four, say is death, right? Why the number four is unlucky in Chinese. Uh, in Mandarin and Sli and uh, Sli in uh, Hoi Ping, which is actually a different uh, regional version of Toisan. So like I even speak a regional, regional, uh, not, not even dialect is a language. It's like a whole different language of uh, the Chinese diaspora. Um, and so the, the other reason why, like, it's not, you're right, it's not a small thing. It's a big thing to even just take that as my identity, right, uh, as part of me. Because linguistic identity, linguistic identity is ethnic di identity. Um, and I, you know, I've asked a lot of writers, do you know a memoir where, you know, besides in the deaf community, um, a, in the immigrant diaspora, a kid doesn't speak the language of their parents. And there are, there are language things here and there, you know, there's Michelle Downer's Crying in H Mart, right, that has some Korean in it. And there's Cat Chow's Seeing Ghost, where there's some Cantonese in it. But there's not a memoir that I have found anyway in the immigrant diaspora where a kid does not understand their parents and or is not fluent in their parents' language. And that is actually a very common experience for a lot of us. Um, and if it's, if it's not that, then it's also there's cultural differences that you don't know and are unspoken. Um, there's just all kinds of things that are unspoken. And, you know, as I've told white people, black people, um, people who are monolingual and people who are multilingual, they're like, no, this is actually quite a common experience of just not being able to communicate in the way you want. And so I'm trying to kind of interrogate that in the experience of not speaking my parents' language in the very, very so-called extreme of it, which is not actually extreme at all as I'm talking to more people. Um, but it makes me sad that people think that experience doesn't exist because there's also a stigma around it, right? That um, you're supposed to know your family's language, but how do you learn your family's language when I'm going to school in English, when you're telling me to go learn English, when I don't go to Cantonese school, um, when it's really hard to learn Chinese, you have to be kind of able-bodied to learn that as well, right? Um, so there are all these layers to why I don't speak this language and part, a lot of it's colonization and genocides of people and genocides of languages by uh, Mandarin being forced to be a standardized language in China, right? So um, I'm hoping that, you know, I, I just learned this term cultural bereavement, um, which apparently was coined in 1991. Um, and the predominant research is from a white guy, a white researcher, who's halfway across the world from America, who was uh, researching based on the experience of Cambodian refugees and other refugees. And um, it's this feeling of like loss of culture, loss of uh, language, not being able to connect and the grief that surrounds that. I know there was also this term uh, coined uh, called racial melancholia of just like not ever feeling like you belong uh, based on your race, which again is a biological construct, but unfortunately America is made into a real social construct. Um, but I never thought that quite um, explained my experience because so much of it is not understanding my parents' cultures, languages, identities, um, the ways they've been socialized to be here in America. 
um, especially uh, growing up in Chinatown where they didn't have to learn English uh, in order to survive. Um, so I'm, I'm now kind of wading my feet into what cultural bereavement looks like and uh, what healing that might look like for me and for other communities. Um, and especially around the language aspect, because there's so much there. Um, so I'm hoping this book eventually, if it ever gets published, I hope it will, um, can really talk about that experience. When it gets published. When. When, when it gets published. Yep. I just, um, the main thing, I it's, it's going to be hard to find an agent and then an editor who wants non-English languages on the page too, right? So that's another part of the supremacist culture that you're supposed to have all English here, but I'm not, I can't because I can't depict my parents' conversations in English. I, I can't translate them to you because um, that that's not what happened. They don't speak English. And that's going to so, be a fight. Yeah. It's going to be a fight on fight and climbing a mountain, but you'll get there. I, I truly believe that. Uh, I could hear, I mean, I could listen to you like speak all day. We're we're wrapping up here and I'm going to include links on how people can find you and stay connected to your writing journey and everything. Is is Are there any resources or, or things that you want to lead people to, maybe ways to engage with you um, or anything that you have coming up? Well, I don't have any storytelling gigs happening yet uh, because uh, right now I'm trying to finish this draft. Writing takes a long time, as you might imagine. I'm actually going to do my first ever writing residency in April, which I'm very excited about, um, at which point I hope to be back in the world and all of that. Um, you can find me on AnnieTan.com. Uh, you can see some of my storytelling work. Uh, I've told some of these stories with the moth, uh, so you can listen there. Um, you can find me on Annie Tangent on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, and uh, so I've been connecting with just different communities as of late. Of course, listen to Randy Kim's uh, The Bami Chronicles, right? Um, I've recently connected with the Meso community, which is doing some work around cultural bereavement as uh, two Asian American femmes uh, who are just uh, keeping alive this term and kind of bringing it to the forefront um, of just our knowledge, right? And making it more public. Um, and uh, Brown Girl Therapy is also doing a lot of really good work around what it means to be uh, in the immigrant diaspora and trying to find resources and community uh, when it just feels so lonely. Um, I'll also just say one more thing that um, in 2020, there was this article from, sorry, there was this interview from KQED um, where uh, there was this uh, mother who only spoke Spanish who was trying to ask a question on a radio show um, about COVID. And the daughter had to translate. I think it was like a nine, 10 year old daughter translating on the radio. And that interview got just thousands and thousands of shares and people commenting, oh, this is my experience uh, that I don't speak my parents' language or I had to be the translator even at my own parent teacher conferences. I had to be the one telling my mom that like I was acting badly in class or I would just translate it out when talking to the teacher, right? Um, but just to know that we are not alone in this, right? That uh, we've got people and that you can always reach out to people like I did with Leslie, right? There, that there's a reason why we talk on these podcasts is so that we can make sure our experiences are not so lonely, that we know that 
uh, there are other people who are going through this too. And so we can start healing together. Yeah, thanks so much, Annie. If you are liking what you're hearing on this podcast and you are craving more connection, I'm personally inviting you into my Woman Warrior community. This is a community where all women are welcome. We will be silent no more. And this is a space for you to explore what it means to find your voice, build genuine connections with others who aren't trying to fake the funk. If you want to embrace who you are and stand in your power to learn how to make personal safety practical and simple, and simply just continuing to hear diverse voices. See you there.